Hello and welcome to Impact Investment, Intentionality and Innovation. My name is Kieran John and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Edmund Farah from Otto. Ed is co-founder and CEO of Otto, which is an app that allows instant access to science-based tinnitus therapy and is one of the 15 UK health tech startups to join Y Combinator since it started accepting companies in 2005. Thanks for joining us today, Ed. During today's conversation, we're going to touch upon your journey to co-founding Otto discuss how you've accelerated Otto's impact through investment and conclude with your reflections on our report titled Impact Investment, Intentionality and Innovation, Unlocking Financial, Social and Environmental Value for UK PLC. But first, like with every interview during this podcast series, we're going to start by asking, what does the phrase impact venture mean to you? So over to you, Ed. Well, thank you very much for having me, Kieran. It's uh, it's great to be here. Um, for me, it's quite simple. Impact Venture means a company that aims to have a positive social impact on the world, aims to have a positive influence, positive social change as a company, as a, as a, as an, as a venture. And nicely summarises it and also summarises what you do with Otto as well. But before we talk a bit more about Otto and you know your reflection on our report, I thought it'd be good if we could start with a bit of a background. And it does, from my perspective, feel a bit weird asking you this, seeing as we both grew up in Norfolk and have known each other since we were kids. I'm going to start our, our conversation by finding out more about your journey to co-founding Otto. So you spend spent around six years as a doctor in the RAF. I was quite interested to know how did that experience prepare you for life as an entrepreneur my time as a as a doctor in the air force was was awesome i learned so much uh, i had a really varied experience did um lots of different jobs lots of fun things i would say the two key areas that it helped me prepare or helped prepare me for were leadership and communication leadership is something that's taught in the military uh, i went through officer training um as, as part of my ref training and a big part of that was leadership training. Obviously, leadership is different in the military. It's a lot more prescriptive, a lot more direct, as you may imagine. Um, you need to make quicker decisions under in very stressful scenarios. But that kind of basis uh, of leadership training really helped prepare me for much of the, the, the leadership that, that happens now. And although I've had to change my style um, quite a lot in, in, in many areas, that still prepared me really well. Secondly, communication. And this is more from the, the medical side of things. When I went through medical school, one of the first things they teach you is really how to talk to people, how to talk to patients specifically. How do you elicit information from people that, that's going to be helpful to you when you make a decision about their care? And that's relevant as an entrepreneur because you need to be able to understand problems that people face so that you can solve them. All doctors have to learn how to do it. All doctors, good doctors have to be, have to be really good at this. And that preparation was kind of integral for, for me understanding people with tinnitus and how that, how that affects them and how that affects their lives. Brilliant. That's a really interesting insight, Ed. And you talked about the stressful scenarios in, in the military and you also talked about your medical background, but you've also worked in the NHS, which is under lots of pressure at the moment. And there's lots of stresses involved being, being a doctor. I know lots of medical professions who like friends and family who have for their own mental health can't basically cope with those working conditions anymore and have instead decided to go on a different path and you know, move abroad and practice there. I guess you could have followed a similar path to that potentially, but instead decided to co-found Otto. I'd be quite interested to know what inspired you to forge this path as a founder. Well, it's worth clarifying that I left the military and I left medicine to found Otto. The decision wasn't the other way around, but I think if, it, if I'd left it much longer, I probably would have made that decision anyway. I left medicine uh, around two and a half years ago now, and actually things have accelerated 
at the moment and people that I know that are still in medicine have said that things have really deteriorated in that period. It was still bad when I was working as a doctor, uh, but I don't think anywhere, anywhere quite as near as it as bad as it is now. Um, having said that, working as a doctor in the NHS in many jobs, many specialities is very difficult in many ways, as, as you've as you've talked about. It takes its toll emotionally, long hours, working weekends, working nights. And I just looked forward and I thought, do I want to spend the rest of my career doing this? And I was lucky in that I came to a natural break in my career. I finished core surgical training, did, did two years of surgical training, and then had a decision whether to continue and go into specialist training. At that time, I'd already started thinking about founding a company and starting Otto and looking into problems that, that I could solve. So I was kind of lucky in that the timing was right. I came to a natural point of inflection in my career. That was kind of what, what, what caused me to, to leave at the time I did. Your response so far, there's a definite theme of solving problems, solving problems in military situations, solving problems in the medical situation, and now what you're doing with Otto with the digital health side of things. Obviously, it's really interesting to hear from the, the doctor perspective of what it's like in the NHS, and it sounds it sounds really tough, and kudos to all the doctors out there who, who are still doing that and still practicing. From a patient perspective, I'm a, as you know, I'm a type 1, I've got type 1 diabetes, and I'm generally a really big supporter of the NHS but have at times found it quite frustrating to navigate the kind of long waiting lists and you know having to go in to in-person appointments I appreciate that's not necessarily the fault of the people who are on the other end of the phone or on the other end of the appointment but that's just the situation it is at the moment do you think people are going to turn to digital health apps like Otto because it's getting harder and harder to receive that kind of support for the NHS or do you think this drive for the digital health kind of revolution is being driven by things like wearable tech AI and machine learning I certainly hope so. The NHS is in a really tricky situation at the moment. And it's also worth remembering that the NHS isn't a single organisation. It's a collection of numerous different organisations that all have their own stresses. So I certainly hope that a move from in-person treatment and in-person health towards digital health will help. But I think it's something that needs investment, needs time. It's a big change. If you're talking about how you're managing patients, it's a big change to how things used to be done and how things in many ways, in many places still are being done. And in order to kind of force that change through, I think we've got at the moment, the perfect storm of a, there not being enough resource. So things has to become more efficient in order for it to function. And B, people want, people are getting poor care because of it. People have long waiting lists um, and people are waiting a long time to see a doctor. So the combination of the poor patient experience and something that's actually becoming increasingly inefficient for the, for the health system as a whole, um, I, I'm hoping will we'll, we'll force through changes. But it's not something that happens overnight. And many of the systems that we have in place within the NHS have been used for, for, for decades. And as such, it's very difficult to change these. And the other thing I would add to that as well, this type of change is going to need significant investment and significant time and resource allocation that obviously is very difficult when um, resources are stretched to their absolute max already. So um, it's a it's a huge problem and it's going to be a, a tricky one to solve. You're talking about you know, massive investment. Are you talking about that in the context of you know, VCs and funds putting the money into digital health startups? Or are you thinking there's more of a role for the third sector, for the, the government, charities, NHS bodies to kind of support the, the next generation of digital health startups you might? bridge the gap between the service delivery that people should get and what people are getting. We already are seeing massive investment from venture capital and private um, private markets into digital health and, and early stage digital health startups. But that's not translated into significant change. Uh, in, in many areas it has actually, but, but there's still 
the vast, the vast majority of the NHS is, is changing quite slowly and moving quite slowly on this. And I think it's because it's all very well creating an amazing product that solves a problem, but integrating that product uh, is a whole different challenge. The integration part, I think, is something that's going to need time and investment from the NHS perspective. I don't think there's any shortage of solutions or products that can improve improve services or improve life for patients. It's integrating these that is taking the, taking the time and will, will require the investment. You, you obviously talked about solutions and products you know, making impacts and driving change. So I guess turning now to your, your time at Otto, I guess you could have had a, a plethora of different social causes that you wanted to to, ch- to, to tackle and solve those problems. Why tinnitus? So during my time in the military, uh, two things happened. The first thing was that I actually developed tinnitus myself. Thankfully, it was quite mild, got used to it quite quickly. For those listeners that don't know what tinnitus is or aren't familiar with it, it's a condition that's commonly experienced by a high-pitched ringing noise in your ear. It could be a hissing or buzzing sound, but most commonly a high-pitched ringing sound. In most cases, there's no cure. Effective treatment is very difficult to access. And if you imagine a high-pitched ringing noise in your ear, constantly it stops you from sleeping stops you from concentrating this is hugely unpleasant for people that suffer with it and has a massive impact on quality of life and i didn't realize this until i saw men and women in the military who experienced tinnitus as a result of noise exposure from their occupation i realized how big of a problem this was and i started looking into the numbers and saw that one in eight people have chronic tinnitus incurable tinnitus one in 20 people have what we call intrusive tinnitus. Intrusive tinnitus is defined as tinnitus that has a measurable negative impact on quality of life. It was a problem that was not only having a a big impact on on individuals, but it's a societal problem as well. As a society, I don't think we do a very good job of helping people people with it, especially when you look at the numbers. You talked about the experience of colleagues in the military having it and yourself having tinnitus, and I believe your co-founder, George, has tinnitus as well. How, is, how important is it for you to have that, that lived experience when you're developing the app and pitching to investors? I guess you can kind of you know, see it from their perspective, or especially see it from the user's perspective, can't you? Yeah, it's critical. In order to build a product that will change people's lives or will make their lives better, you have to understand the problem that you're, you're solving with that product. Understanding the problem becomes so much easier if you've got lived experience of that problem yourself. That's kind of the first step, right? If you if you un, if you have lived through that problem and you've had it yourself, um, George struggled with it more than I did, and that understanding that we shared between us provided the perfect platform to build on and, and develop our understanding. So it's 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 been critical for us, really. So with the sort of developing understanding, I guess you've had lots of feedback from users people who have got tinnitus and hopefully have been benefited from using otto have you got any good examples of the impact you've had on those users we've now got the product to the point where it's changing people's lives and we know that because we get messages every day from people saying this app has has changed my life more specifically how has it changed their life well it massively reduces the impact of tinnitus so it's no longer stopping them from sleeping it's no longer making them feel anxious about either the present or the future if you imagine having a permanent ringing noise and being told, I'm sorry, there's nothing that can be done. That makes people very, very anxious because they think, oh, I've got to live with this thing for the rest of my life. How can I cope? And that triggers anxiety and significant mental health impact in many of these people. So um, we're reducing that mental health impact. 
We're helping people sleep. We're helping people concentrate. And we're also just helping people to understand the condition and how it will affect them and, and what might have caused it. There's many different areas of their life that it's, that it's impacting. There's kind of perception with tinnitus that Yoni and Liam Gallagher's got tinnitus, people who are in the music industry, DJs who are kind of around it day to day. But I think, I guess it's a real important thing you do is kind of the education piece as well by showing the impact this has on people's lives. And as you said earlier, the knock-on effect to society generally. Yeah, that's something that, that is actually often underestimated. One of the first things you'll do or people do when, they, when they've developed tinnitus is they'll go to Google and they'll start searching and they come across um, a number of websites, usually many of which are helpful, many of which are unhelpful forums, quite a lot of negativity. And sometimes they just want answers. They want to know how long will this last? Will it ever go away? How can I help it? How can I manage it? Who else has it? Is there anyone that I can speak to with it? And uh, we, we hope to provide a good source of information that, that people can go to when they when they have these questions. If they have those questions, you would historically perhaps go to a, to a doctor and ask them. Do you think that people feel more, more reassured when they look into Otto and realise that you've got that medical background and, you know, you can obviously maybe not provide them specific medical support individually, but, you know, fact check, this is what the reality are, this is what you can do to to make a positive impact in your life. Absolutely. People with tinnitus, largely speaking, have a very poor experience when they go and see their doctor. The vast majority of them have been told by their doctor that there's nothing that can be done and they just need to learn to live with it. If you imagine how that would feel to be told that you've got this horrendous noise in your head that you can't do anything about, you can't get rid of, and you just have to learn to live with it. These people feel devastated when they get told that. So there needs to be a better way of providing that information to them. And the way that we provide that information is by through spoken word. We have recorded audio sessions that will gently take people through the information that they need to know in order to understand what their tinnitus is, how it's going to affect them, how they can manage it, and what their life could look like going forward. I'm sure that's extremely valuable to anyone who, who uses the app. And but also imagine a lot of lot of work for your perspective as a co-founder and obviously the Otto team. We speak to lots of founders, and if you're doing it on your own, you, you can build a business. But it's often you know it's often great to have someone next to you who you can support, you know, divvy up the certain roles and support each other through the journey. I'm interested to know what it's like to be a co-founder alongside alongside George. It's great. George is one of my oldest friends, trained together at medical school. So we've been friends for around uh, 12 years. And when we first met, we've kind of always known deep down, we've both always been entrepreneurial. And I think we knew deep down that we wanted to start a business together um, many years before we started Otto. So it's really exciting to be able to be on this journey with, with a very close friend. In terms of how it's been as co-founders together, we, we challenge each other, we push each other, we disagree on many things, but that's good, right? Because if we all agreed on the same thing, sometimes the decisions we make wouldn't be as good as if we, we challenged each other on those decisions. It's been a very positive experience. We share responsibility very fairly. Um, and yeah, it's, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. That sounds really positive. You talked about the kind of, you know, sharing up our responsibilities. Did you, did you kind of both naturally fall into certain roles or was the carve up of responsibilities kind of based on your particular interest or skill set? I know you've got, you're both a medical background, you both got the entrepreneurial drive, but did you have like certain things that you focused on and, other things you thought, you know, your co-founder was better to, to deal with? When we first started out, we had a decision to make. And that decision was, well, we knew we wanted to build this product. And we had to decide, A, do we pay someone else to build this for us? B, do we bring on another co-founder or another team member and get them to build it? C, do we give up? Obviously, that's not an option, really. Or D, does one of us learn how to build a product? Does one of us learn how to code? George has the exact same background as me. He's a doc, well, he's a doctor in the Navy, not the Air Force. But George already knew how basic uh, HTML. So we made the decision then for George would build the app. 
and I would do everything else. So we kind of, it was kind of luck that we fell into the roles that we were doing um, and it could have easily gone the other way, I think. Yeah, it's interesting to see how that those roles divvy up and I guess, you know, it's good to have the perspective as, as co-founders with actually building the product as well because you can offer that insight and, you know, you can feed that back to each other. So you talked about, you know, when you're first starting out, what was it like to found this company in the UK? If you're looking back on this now after you've, you've been incorporated a few years, what, would you do anything differently? Would you take any different approaches? Oh, there's there's hundreds of things I do differently. Uh, I've, I've made we've made every mistake in the book really when it comes to product, when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to marketing. I think that's because we're first time founders, and the way to learn and the way to get good at things is by making mistakes and by learning from those mistakes. There is you know, a long list of things I would do differently. I, I don't think there's, there's there's much I would change. The things I would change really come down to fundraising and how we raise money, how much money we raised, and how I approach that. Um, and there's some general things there and some specific things there. In terms of what it's like to found a company in the UK, you know, the UK has its problems socially, politically, which I'm sure we, we, we won't go into now. But um, in terms of from a, from a founder perspective, there's many things that have been pretty good, primarily um, SEIS and EIS tax relief, which means that investors can get a really good deal when they invest in an early stage company and they can claim that and they, they can get, get tax relief on that investment. And if the investment goes sour, they can, they can claim tax relief on that as well. So what were those, you know, the SEIS and EIS things, were they kind of central to your approach to fundraising when you're going out and talking to investors or do you talk more about the impact you're having through Otto? Especially certainly UK investors, it was expected that we would use SEIS, EIS. I think what it's allowed is A, us to raise more money and B, for the threshold for investment to be lower because the investor is taking on less risk when they're investing into you. For sure. And obviously you've been really successful with the fundraising rounds you've done, but I was interested to know how you how you got what we tend to call that investment ready. How do you approach that? Did you do certain things to kind of make Otto look really attractive to investors? Some home truths here. So when you, you, you see a company like Otto and you, you know, we, we did raise, we have raised two, we've raised a pre-seed round and a, uh, and a seed round. Both of those were the culmination of months and months and months of being told no by investors, mistakes, things going wrong. And a lot of the time in, in this, the startup world, in fact, all the time in the startup world, raising money is very glamorized. You don't see the the struggle, the blood, sweat and the tears that goes into that in the background. So um, there's lots that went wrong. We've not talked about. But in terms of what we did to get investment ready, so the first time with our pre-seed round, the honest answer to that is very little. I went into it with very little preparation. And that was kind of the first mistake I made. I then learned that that didn't go well for our seed round. So I spent probably three or four months preparing. The preparation that went into that was um, planning the process. Um, how long would I spend speaking to investors? How long would I spend? When would I open the round? When would I close the round? How long would it take to close the round? Um, that's really important, getting the timelines right. The second thing was preparing a list of investors and prioritizing those investors. And that would be based on things like, um, is there an alignment in values in between what this investor is investing in and what we want to achieve? Has this investor invested in similar uh, in similar verticals? or similar companies, is the check size the right amount for this investor to be looking at? So prioritizing investors based on that. Oh, and also what have other founders said about these investors? That's important. Um, and then I think the third thing was, uh, the third thing I needed to do was actually get links to these investors. Cold emails to investors or cold outreach to investors is very unlikely to be successful because when you're investing at pre-seed stage or seed stage, it's all about, does this investor trust the founder with their money? Not about the, the metrics or, or much else really it's all about do they trust you do they trust you to deliver on your vision 
And are you the right person to lead this business? And to get them to trust you, you need to come from someone they trust. So I had to reach out to the to probably you know 100 portfolio companies, founders of portfolio companies that these investors had invested in to try and get an introduction. So those were the three things I did. Um, and a lot of planning and preparation went into it when we did when we raised our seed rounds. So the third thing I needed to do was get warm introductions to the investors that I wanted to speak to. And that took a lot of time because a warm introduction is a lot more effective than a cold introduction. Early stage investment, early stage venture capital is all about does the investor trust the founder to deliver on their vision? And in order to build that trust, the introduction has to come from the right place. So not just a cold email that's sent, my name's Ed, this is my business, please, please invest. It comes from a founder of the company that the investor has already invested in. Um, so that was the three, the three things that we, that, that I, that I spent three things that I really spent a lot of time preparing on. Really interesting insight and definitely the warm intros is, de is definitely seems to be the way forward. Are those warm intros, do they come from, obviously Otto has been part of, you know, the Bethnal Green Ventures Tech for Good program and also now Y Combinator. Did those kind of warm introductions come from those kind of cohorts and those networks or was it from other places? It was a mixture of everything, really. I spent a lot of time researching companies that investors had invested in, and then I just wrote, reached out to those comp companies on LinkedIn. I spent a lot of time, uh, Y Combinator actually have their own investor database um, with a list of investors and, and Y Combinator companies that those investors have invested in. So there's a really powerful network there, a really helpful network there. Yeah, the, the, the network from, from Y Combinator and, and, and Bethnal Green Ventures as well in, has, has been super helpful. I think the Bethnal Green Ventures angle flows quite nicely now onto the next section of our report, which um, featured uh, Dharma from Bethnal Green Ventures, one of our expert contributors. A, a key theme of our report, which really stuck out to me, is intentionality. And it seemed like that's that's come across today in our conversation about Otto, you're doing this because you want intentionally want to make it, make an impact. The impact investors we spoke to said that this intentionality, this impact must be integral part of the investee's business. So when you went out and spoke to investors for warm interruptions or earlier on when they were, they were colder, did you talk specifically about Otto's intentional impact? To begin with, no. But then I very quickly realized that the ability to sell your vision, sell the impact that you want to have on the world is going to be, was going to be integral to whether I'd be able to raise this money or not. So I very quickly modified my pitch. And the first thing I spoke about with these investors was the vision for the company, the purpose, why do we exist? And that had a big impact. Um, and that was that that was the same for, you know, a, a small check angel investor all the way to, up to the to the biggest venture capital funds that that I spoke to. So, in, you know, to summarize, intentionality was it kind of it's a kind of a necessity for for founders when speaking to investors. If, you know, if they're if they're looking to, to really be able to tell the story, to sell their vision, I think it's one of the most important things to be able to get investors on board. For sure. I, I definitely agree with that. We talked about you know, modifying your pitch. Was that in the context of who you're you're presenting to. Do you, for instance, have one deck if you're pitching to an impact-style investor and a different deck if you're pitching to someone who's perhaps a more, we call, mainstream investor? No, I had the same pitch for everyone. I knew that impact is at the core of what we're doing, the positive social change that we want to, that we want to make, the improving of people's lives with tinnitus, and that wouldn't have made a difference to me whether I was pitching to an impact investor or a, a non-impact investor. Yeah, I think there's this, this priest strikes a quite a nice chord with some of the reflections of the report about impact ventures like Otto Health, Otto Health 
they, they are commercially viable. They are going to make, they're going to give investors returns. Did you ever, you know, think about refraining from talking too much about the impact because you wanted, you don't want to give the misconception that that's all you do. You, you want to give the perception that you are going to give the investors returns as well. Yeah, there is the pressure there. Uh, and especially with the mainstream investors, you know, the bottom line is on what they'll make their decision on. But I go back to what I said earlier in early stage investment, the investors are looking for, do they trust the founder to be able to deliver on their vision? The core of that is why did you start the business? Why are you doing what you're doing? Is that genuine? That's very closely linked, I think, to, in, to intentionality. So I think when it is an investor is making a decision based on, uh, and it is an emotional decision, by the way, it's not a, it's not a mathematical decision. It's, it's very much an emotional decision at this stage. And that emotional decision, I think, will be linked to the vision and the impact that you want to have and how effective you've been at selling that vision. Um, so I think it's critical. You talked about you know the founder being genuine, and that's something that the investor wants to see. There's some people in our interview stage, they were talking about ways to potentially like, incentivize founders to kind of hit impact targets. Do you think that's something that would incentivize you or you just are you in it because of that impact anyway? You don't need an extra return financially because of that? I, no, I certainly don't think I would. I mean, if I needed an incentive to, to hit those, then I, why would I be started the business in the first place, I suppose? The, the, the whole purpose of why Otto exists is so integral to the, you know, the functioning of the business and why I do what I do and why, why George and I work together and why everyone working so hard for the company. So I think that I don't think that that would be that would be necessary for us. And part of my job as a CEO is to ensure consistent, clear communication of that vision and that mission, decide how we're going to make the next step towards that. So I, I don't think I would need it's motivating enough. The whole point of the, of the mission and vision is that it is motivating. So I think that that's 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 motivating enough for me. I think one of the other things that jumped out to me from our interviews on the Impact Investing Report, we talked about ESG and impact being different different things, but but slightly connected. Lots of people talked about ESG being what they call like hygiene criteria for the impact investors. Obviously, as we talked about today, Otto is inherently impactful, but. Do you think it's still important to, you know, not have a negative impact on the environment, you know, treat the team fairly and, you know, implement good governance as well? Or is it just important just to focus on the impact you're having itself, then all those things will follow as you become more established? Yeah, I think it is important. I think ESG, I certainly didn't really have much of an understanding of ESG when I started out. The difference between the two is that ESG is perhaps better used for reporting, whereas impact, as you've mentioned in your report, is about, you know, the intentionality. So I think it is important to have values or set the, the culture of the business and the values of the business that align with your own personal values. And I think if you're intending to have a positive impact on the world with the, with the business that you started, then I kind of think that the, the cultural values of that business and how you treat people at the business should reflect that. And if they don't, then there's a, you know, there's a, there's a mismatch. When it comes to the environmental impact, look, it's, it's very, very difficult for a company of our stage to, unless we're an unless we're a climate a climate tech company, it's it's kind of difficult for a company at our stage to really assess that impact because you know we have a WeWork office, you know we all get public transport to work, we don't have our own office space. So I think for for very early stage small stage startups, I think ESG is is perhaps maybe overkill is the wrong word, but um, it's certainly important to have these at the back of your mind and think about how do you weave these principles into the into the business that you're building. But I'm not getting too focused on on those things because I know that the the values and the culture that we're building, these things will happen in time when they need to. 
Yeah, exactly. And I guess there's, you know, you talked a lot earlier about the, the work you do with Otto and frankly, the stuff on the fundraising side sounds like a, a full-time job in itself. And I imagine that if you were to take those ESG aspects and record that data and look into that, that's kind of <laughs> like an extra job as well. And presumably that's, you know, that time is better spent accelerating Otto's impact in itself, isn't it? It's super important to have at the back of your mind. And when the company grows and when the company gets bigger, we will absolutely be, be considering those things. I think that you know, because we are an impact venture and we want to have a positive social impact, that social impact has to just be reflected in, in the, the, the company culture as well. So it's, it's about doing the right thing ethically and treating people well. And I think if you treat people well, there's actually a positive, a good business incentive to do that as well. Because you, if you treat people that work for you well, they're more likely to, to work hard and, and help, you, help you achieve that vision. And it just makes it a nice nicer place to work it makes your life more enjoyable if, if people are treated nicely and people feel valued so it's very, very important for me to, to to ensure that that is woven into the culture of otto i guess on the culture side you can bring your experience of being in a environment like the, the military environment and you know in nhs when you're kind of you know under under pressure you kind of all muck in don't you and you know work towards a, a common cause so i guess that's a, a way you can do that but on the esg side of things another thing from our report was there's some kind of concern perhaps that ESG style investing was kind of crowding out opportunities for impact ventures to accept to obtain that capital. I recently attended a, a pitch event and I'm not going to name it, but there was a pet company that was basically using impact style language to try and position itself as an impact venture. I'm interested to know how you feel about other ventures who maybe aren't intentionally impactful like Otto kind of moving in this space and possibly you know, with the current climate limiting funding opportunities for, for impact ventures. I think this comes down to the to the investors and i think actually it will be quite clear to Im impact investors which startups do have intentionality and which startups don't and i think with this the responsibility does come down to the investor to be making shrewd decisions and, and clever decisions investors are very good at you know they, they speak to hundreds of founders and i think they're very good at being able to determine is this person genuine does this person genuinely want to have a positive impact on the world or are they just using this to make themselves you know, to, to widen their scope of potential investment, the market will call these companies out and the market will um, ensure that these companies don't get a platform when perhaps they might do. It might take a bit of time, but it's all about trust between investor and founder. If a founder is making claims about the potential impact they're having that don't seem genuine, that's going to have an impact on the trust um, and the, the likelihood for investment will, will decrease, I think. For sure. I think it's that that legitimacy and you know we're doing this for this reason not just chasing the, the next big thing in, in venture capital but I was interested you talked earlier about you know the way that you went about trying to track down investors I think one of the things from our report was talking about encouraging more transparency and accountability on the investor side like for instance through an index of impact investors do you think you would have found that that useful if you're starting out on, on day one I think for later stage investment absolutely yes for early stage investment um, in fact, yes, for, for, sorry, what I meant to say was yes, for all stage of investment, this would have been, this would have been useful. The reason being when you, when you set out to look for these investment, when, when you set out to look for the investors and you shortlist your investors, you want to check, does this investor have alignment with the values of, of my personal values and the values of the company? Um, impact investors, I think clearly more naturally are more naturally aligned to, um, impacts, impact startups and impact ventures. So yeah, I think that certainly would have been useful. What I was saying about the later stage thing is I think that when you get further down the line and you need to really, really think about which 
investors you're going to get as, as perhaps board members. I think that becomes even more useful because if you're having someone on your board, for example, that will become an integral part of how your company is managed and run. Then, of course, it's, we want to make sure that impact is thought of um, as something that's impact is always at the forefront of our mind. You talked earlier about getting investors on the board and, you know, in an ideal situation, you'd want to have, I expect you'd want to have lots of different investors who are backing the company, bringing money and expertise. But I guess on the flip side, there's the the risk that they're all coming at, coming at you with different approaches. And you know, would that be with, you know, legal documents or would that be with, you know, how they want you to measure your impact? Do you think it would be helpful if investees across the board, not just talking about your particular investors, but investors in general were more standardized with their approaches and made, frankly, made things easier for you as a founder? I think so. Yes. It's very difficult because when you're raising early stage investment, a lot of it is you, you don't necessarily have too much choice over who your investors are going to be because it's so hard to raise money. I spoke to probably 100, 100 investors. A lot of the time, you won't be able to take your pick of, of, of which, one, which one to go for. But I think it would be useful to have, as you said, something standardized that kind of like a clear message, a clear system, a clear way of doing things um, when it comes to impact. Because, And I think the other reason that's important is because as we've discovered, impact means different things to different investors. And as, as is made very apparent by your report, impact means different things. And many people will, will claim to care about impact or, or claim that impact is important to them, but their understanding of what they actually mean when they say that is different to perhaps what the, what the startups and um, understanding of that might be. So I think to have something that would be uh, standardized, um, you know, perhaps if it's just as simple as standard definitions could be I think could be useful for founders, yeah. For sure. From the legal side, I think that makes makes life much easier for advising impact ventures as well and also impact investors as well. But obviously we, we covered we covered a lot today and it's been really interesting to hear about, you know, your journey to to being a founder and your your background and what you're doing now and where you're going with Otto. But as we bring today's conversation to a close, I kind of wanted to give you the opportunity to, you know, mention or spotlight anything that you'd like to like to talk about. Firstly, I'd like to say thank you for Taylor Vinters because because they helped us with our pre-seed round and you guys gave it was, it was an awesome experience and you guys were, were super helpful when it comes to to closing our pre-seed round. So thank you for that. And secondly, yeah, I thank you for for the work you do, Kieran, because this is incredibly important to help people understand firstly what impact investing and, and impact ventures actually are. I think there is a lot of misalignment on definitions and on terms um, in this field, and I think providing clarity on this and and pushing pushing forward will really help to to ensure that impact is more and more becomes reaches the forefront of, of VC and, and startups in general. So well thanks for you for you know sharing your experiences today because I'm sure our listeners will find it really beneficial and I've obviously I've known you pretty much all my life but I learned a lot today as well. So that's been really good. But as we've been today's conversation to close, I want to thank everyone for listening and obviously thank you, Ed, for your your time again today. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Otto, head to www.joinotto.com. And if you'd like to read our report and be part of our Impact Align community, head to www.taylorwinters.com. Thank you.